<laughs> she has taught scientific and medical editing at New York University and business writing and communications at Parsons and New School. I would now officially like to welcome Barbara to the lecture. Can you hear me? Are we on? Okay. Well, first of all, welcome. You know, January is Hamilton's birthday. Um, it is his 265th. I accept 1755 as the birth date, not 1757. I call this a prequel. I'm going to fix you. Fix me. Uh, she's going to fix me. I thought I was perfect. Okay. You are perfect. I'm okay. making it better. 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 Okay. I'm calling it a prequel because we're taking a trip back in time. Before Hamilton hip-hopped across the Broadway stage with Burr, before 1776 had the Founding Fathers dancing across Philadelphia, we're going back. Back before computers and the internet, back to snail mail, reading rooms, library stacks, card catalogs, and microfilm. Back to handwritten notes and typed findings. In the 27 volumes of the Hamilton Papers, which took 32 years to complete, and were published between 1961 and 1987, the editor, Harold Surrett, firmly established Hamilton's legacy. He presented documents and research findings that challenged the traditional interpretation of the Hamilton-Jefferson dichotomy, and that had dominated the teaching of American history for years. These volumes remain the basic primary source for all serious students of the Founding Fathers and everybody who's written about Hamilton since has consulted these volumes. Now, why go back? Because these and other projects to collect and edit the papers of our founding fathers are themselves now part of our historical legacy. And the lessons and techniques used provided scholars with accurate transcripts and detailed explanatory notes of all events. The history of these projects should be as accurate as the volumes they produced. The material has acquired greater relevance during our current constitutional crisis, a time that illuminates the need to study these original documents, recognize the wisdom of our nation's founders, and appreciate their ability to compromise regional and philosophical differences. In an age of enlightenment, their goals were remarkably far-sighted. They established an unusually secular government under which all people would theoretically be allowed to flourish. As a nation, we have still not fulfilled that vision. There are times, in fact, we seem to move backward. Although the published volumes from the Founding Fathers projects are now online, the research techniques used to annotate these documents cannot be duplicated. Today, research is both simpler because of the internet and less serendipitous because heightened security measures limit access to libraries and materials. In addition, the public is accustomed to thinking now in sound bites and quick targeted searches, whereas our ability to move back and forth among all the campus libraries from the stacks to the reference library to the microfilm room to the rare book room with unlimited access and limited security um, made it very efficient for us. I could follow a trail from one library to another. Nobody stopped me. Nobody asked me if I had pens or papers on me. Nobody limited how much material I could look at at one time. It was all open to us. And all of the librarians seemed to have a real interest in what we were doing. So if you explained what your problem was, they could often give you access to material you didn't even know was there. This is something we're missing in all of this 
sort of targeted internet searching. You know, now if you are interested in a particular event, you target your search and you get just that letter. But you don't know if maybe the letter before said something else or there was a follow-up afterwards. We didn't have that luxury. So if I needed to know what happened on a certain day between Hamilton and Washington, I had to read all of the Washington correspondence. That gives you a much broader perspective on events. Now, efforts, efforts to preserve federal agency records and publish historical materials went back to um, Teddy Roosevelt and the Keep Commission in 1905. But it was not until 1934 that Congress established the National Archives. <laughs> Columbia University Press, which had been interested in publishing a new edition of Hamilton's papers, commissioned Abbott E. Smith, a professor of history at Bard College, to survey existing editions of his writings. His 1939 report confirmed the need for a new edition, but World War II intervened. After the war, patriotism ran high, prosperity seemed limitless, and in 1950, impressed by the first volume of the Thomas Jefferson Papers, edited by Julian Boyd at Princeton, Harry Truman proposed a comprehensive program for the publication of the public and private writings of our founders. And in 1951, the National Archives prepared a report urging the, the uh, establishment of non-federally funded projects to publish the papers of Benjamin Franklin, John and John Quincy Adams, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. The projects had a shared mission to collect and edit everything written to or by or from, to, everything to and from their subjects. Once again, Columbia University Press was eager, and once again, they lacked funding. But in 1955, Time Inc. provided a grant that was supplemented by the Rockefeller Foundation. Harold Sered, a popular history professor at Columbia, was selected as executive editor. And over the years, the project received funding from the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment, Columbia University, the Kidd Peabody Foundation, the Charles Merrill Trust, and in the end, to get us through to the, the, the last volume, um, our friends at the Bank of New York. Hamilton was a founder of the bank, so they always had an interest in the project. When the turbulent 1960s exploded, funding for these projects became much harder uh, to find. New and abridged projects which, with more diverse subjects were begun. In fact, these projects became known as the Great White Father Projects. Um, they were also more extensive and more expensive than anticipated. Uh, originally, Hamilton was going to be seven volumes. We became 27, and our cost was $1.5 million. Now, unlike other founding fathers, Hamilton made no effort to preserve his papers. He didn't keep a letter book or a diary. He frequently didn't save letters he received. He cared more about the opinion of his contemporaries than he did about posterity. And because he did not live to reach a reflective old age, he did little to assure his place in history. His wife, however, did, the very beautiful Elizabeth Hamilton. After his death in 1804, and she lived 50 years past him. She died in 1854. And she embarked immediately on a mission to gather his papers. Challenging effort in, in what was the time of Jefferson and Jackson, not a very Hamilton-friendly time. But in 1848, she convinced Congress to appropriate $26,000 for, 
to purchase and publish the 57 volumes of papers she had collected. And she then badgered her son, John Church Hamilton, into editing them. In 1850-51, his edition of his father's papers appeared in seven volumes. His transcriptions are accurate, but he has no annotations or footnotes, and he left out certain things. The Reynolds affair isn't mentioned. Um, and you can see Elizabeth's hand in the fact that none of her letters are there. In fact, Surrett, over all the years of this project, we only had one letter from Elizabeth to him. We had a lot from him to her, but she destroyed most of her correspondence with him. Occasionally something comes up in a private collection, but it's, it's rare. We also know that she asked Hamilton's friends to send letters that they had, but they also destroyed things that were negative, and we have examples. Rufus King, who was a great friend of Hamilton's, in a letter to Elizabeth admits that he found some things, but they weren't really very good, and so he, he didn't send them on. Later, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge did a sub, another edition of Hamilton's papers. Uh, that has annotations, and it includes the Reynolds affair, but it is notoriously inaccurate. The transcriptions are full of mistakes. The dating of documents is often inaccurate. Now, for this edition, let's see if we can get them. I'm not too good. These are just some of the envelopes we had. For this edition, Surrett collected 19,000 items. And you just have to picture in the old days just a wall of this. 19,000 envelopes of documents, most from the Library of Congress, the National Archives, and holdings from expected sources, historical societies in New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Massachusetts. But we quickly learned there was stuff in the most unusual places. Uh, Glassboro State Teachers College, the American Swedish Historical Society, and even Father Flanagan's Boys Town. Surrett wrote more than 4,000 letters, individually typed, all now on deposit at Columbia's rare book and manuscript room. He wrote to libraries, institutions, and individual manuscript owners. There were ads in newspapers. We reviewed auction catalogs to see if we could pick up the names of, of private collectors. And if we couldn't figure out who bought a letter, if the auction house wouldn't give us the name of the purchaser, we published the extract from the dealer's catalog just to say that we knew the letter existed. Holdings in foreign archives were more challenging to acquire, but in the end we had a lot of stuff from the Canadian Archives, the British Museum, the Royal Library in Stockholm, and even the Hermitage. A cup, occasionally there was a serendipitous find. Um, there was a display in, in the National Archives of uh, the Constitution. It turned out it was partly in Hamilton's handwriting. We hadn't known about that before, so that was a new find. More disappointing was um, a previously unopened trunk in the possession of the widow of Alexander Hamilton IV. And I can still remember going over to the Red Book Room with visions of Reynolds Affair documents. And it turned out to just be a trunk of books. Some may have been his, but most of them probably belonged to his son or his grandson. In the years since the publication of Volume 27, in 1987, there's been new material discovered about Hamilton's early days in St. Croix. And these findings provide insights into his character and development. Some material has turned up from the Schuyler family. They're starting to drop stuff on the auction market. 
but nothing is really telling us anything new about him. There's probably additional material that we never got. I suspect there's material in the Netherlands because Hamilton was attorney for the Holland Land Company. Uh, his wife's brother-in-law, John Barker Church, married to the infamously beautiful Angelica. Um, in England, we know at one time there was a stash of papers. We haven't been able to find it. Uh, the New York Post, Hamilton was a founder of the Post. He was a prolific essayist. Post says they have no record as to which essays were his. Uh, I don't know. And there's still, the Lafayette family had material that I don't think we've seen. So there's stuff out there, and there's still material in private hands, because I keep getting letters now from people saying, I have an item, I have an item. Nothing changes our interpretation. The clerical aspect of this project, what did I do? <laughs> Okay, okay. It's difficult. It's really difficult to explain. But these are, how do I get it to center? Can we center this better? No. Okay, well we can't, we can't. This is Hamilton's opinion on the constitutionality of the bank. I just want, using it, I could use a lot of different documents. But you can see here what it was we had. That was the original manuscript, the, the original document. What you see here is our typescript. And you can see the challenges we had in even just figuring out what it was. And then this, this is in the days before computers. So it then went to a typesetter, which went ahead and typeset this whole thing. And you can see even the hand with the finger pointing, all of this was hand set. Tremendous skill involved in doing this. In cases where originals were damaged, this is one. This is Hamilton's last letter to his wife Eliza before the duel with Aaron Burr. And you can see that the manuscript has spots and things are missing. But we were able to find a copy of it that his son made when he was preparing his edition of his father's papers. And at that time, obviously, there was no damage. He had a full transcription. And that was how we filled in the blanks. Now, the Library of Congress now has some kind of new technique, too, where they can uh, read beneath crossed out material so that they've been exposing items that we couldn't read. But in this case, we were able to use the John Church Hamilton transcript. We had a tight group of editors, and our mandate was to edit, not to editorialize. We were charged with providing accurate transcriptions and annotations that interpretive historians could then use. We made research convenient and nonpartisan. Ours was not to judge. Ours was not to take sides. We just presented the evidence from which the scholars could then draw their own conclusions. This differs from biographical research and writing. We did not pick what to include or annotate. We went through Hamilton's correspondence day by day, letter by letter, annotating, explaining, verifying every event, and identifying every person mentioned in a primary source. To annotate a letter between Hamilton and Washington on a topic of international importance could require reading all of their correspondence for that day, as well as the correspondence of everyone mentioned in the letter, any applicable State Department or other sources, and newspapers both domestic and foreign. 
By the time you edited the day's worth of Hamilton's correspondence, you had walked through the day with the founders. You knew what occupied their time, what they thought about major events, as well as more mundane issues, what they wrote, who they corresponded with, and what was written about them. You treated every document as if it were evidence in a court case. You corroborated, you confirmed, you found eyewitnesses to events. Basically, you shadowed them. And by the time you left work, their day was yours. All of our annotations were from primary sources, with essays on major topics and explanations of conflicting interpretations by historians. There are more than 40 lengthy essays on subjects of special interest. They include the Federalist Papers, Hamilton's funding proposals, the Reynolds pamphlet, and Washington's farewell address. When Washington finally resigned in 1796, uh, it was the second time he thought about it. He thought about it in 1792. And James Madison had drafted a farewell address. But in 1796, when he actually did resign, he had Hamilton revise the Madison uh, effort. And that was what is now known as the farewell address. Look, for example, let me see now. This is a, oh. <laughs> okay. Well, so much for that. That's not mine. <laughs> next one? Yeah, next one. Okay, any one of these is fine. Letter from Rufus King, who was our US minister to England. I don't know if that's actually right. And these are coming up backwards somehow. Um, anyway, on March 8, 1797, he wrote Rufus King. There was a short little letter on the low reserves of the Bank of England and on US relations with Central Europe and, and, and Algiers. And by the time this was edited, we had consulted the London Gazette for the orders of the Privy Council, the Parliamentary Register, the Acts of Parliament, the London Times, other correspondence between Hamilton and Rufus King, John Church Hamilton's transcriptions for missing words in the original letter, the Dropmore Papers in England, and Miller's Treaties. Now, I'm, I'm trying to see, there should have been, now we're getting way ahead, all right. The published volumes are now available online, but efficiency has its price. You can access materials easily, which are denied a visual sense of the scope of the undertaking, as well as an appreciation of the range of Hamilton's activities. The ability to target searches in the online correspondence minimizes serendipitous finds and enables researchers to avoid reading surrounding material. It is more antiseptic, less personal. Looking at the originals, transcribing them, touching them gives you a sense of history that you're not getting online. In 1980, Surrett was the first recipient of the American Historical Association's Jameson Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Editing of Historical Sources. It was the pinnacle of his career. Now, Hamilton is a member of the Founding Fathers Club for two reasons. His participation in the creation and ratification of the Constitution and his fiscal proposals. His public life is bracketed by two events his meeting Washington and the death of Washington. <laughs> the public may be more interested in the Reynolds affair and the duel, but what is important is not always sexy. And so from all of this research we did, what did we learn? 
In allowing Hamilton and his contemporaries to speak for themselves, a picture emerged of a much more complex man than earlier histories had presented to us. Some findings flew in the face of the traditional picture of Hamilton as a monarchist and an elitist. For generations, Hamilton was the least popular of the founding fathers. But of all the founding fathers, he is now acknowledged to belong to the American present. He established precedents that still affect our lives, including a centralized government, a balance of power foreign policy, deficit spending, direct intervention of the government in economic life, and a broad interpretation of the Constitution. He authored at least 51 of the 85 Federalist essays to promote ratification of the Constitution in New York, and is now frequently quoted by all cable news networks for his opinions on impeachment, the Electoral College, judicial <laughs> review, and a one-person chief executive. He also held comparatively advanced views on minority rights, perhaps as a result of his early years on the islands. He denounced the loyalty oath for Catholics, proposed a measure to ensure academic freedom in New York's universities, and advocated emancipation. This revised image is now the standard, but at the time it was revolutionary. However, this new evidence shouldn't lead us to ignore his flaws or completely reverse earlier interpretations. He was a ruthlessly ambitious and prideful man who found himself in the right place at the right time with the right mentor in Washington and the right marriage to Elizabeth Schuyler. He had a genius for the intricacies of financial planning an unrivaled capacity for synthesizing arguments into political essays or legal arguments, a weakness for rising to the bait of a challenge, a desire for military glory, and an unwillingness to compromise. From the first letter we have to his childhood friend, Edward Stevens, in 1769, he ended with, I wish there was a war, to his insistence on active military service in the revolution, to his maneuvering Secretary of War Henry Knox out of the way so he could command the military during the Whiskey Insurrection, to his service in raising an army during the Quasi-War with France, to all of his duels, and there were many, he sought military command and glory. And although he advocated emancipation, his priority was always the strengthening of the young country, and as did his contemporaries, he made his compromises with the realities of slavery. His mentor, after all, was a slave owner. Washington, the least formally educated of all the founding fathers, had an incredible instinct for balance. People don't really appreciate what, uh, his almost intuitive instinct for balancing. People, events, opinions, in favor of what he perceived to be the national good. Understanding that only he could unite and stabilize the young nation, he stayed for a second term. But by 1796, he longed to retire to Mount Vernon. And he also understood that it was important to ensure a peaceful transition of government to a new administration and to a new president. And he felt that that was something he could do. I knew more about Washington's activities than I did about my own president, which, given it was Richard Nixon, was probably good. Uh, <laughs> I knew about his daily activities, policy decisions, instructions to his, his manager at Mount Vernon, advice to his step-granddaughter on marriage. Um, it's, it's just that 
a full range of activity these men did in the course of a day beyond what we all know because it's important. All of this mundane stuff in background. Um, he told his step-granddaughter, by the way, that love was not enough and she should be careful before she got married. Um, I knew Hamilton's life. I knew what happened with his children. I knew what trees he wanted to plant at the Grange in Harlem and the fact that his horse had the whimsical name of Riddle. That's because he was on his way to the Supreme Court in Albany, riddled through a shoe, and he was forced to stay at the Beekman Arms. For those of you who've still been up near Rhinebeck, the Beekman Arms is still there. When seen in, in this day-by-day -day approach, the sheer volume of work by the President and the Cabinet was amazing. They started a whole country. What we did in 1776 had never been done before. We said back of the hand to the king. We said, you, you, you know, all the taxes were underrepresented, we're leaving. And then we published a document that in any other time would have been considered treasonous, a signed declaration saying everything we felt was wrong. From appointments of everyone, from ministers and judges to postmasters and lighthouse keepers, to performing a census in 1790, to funding the debt, to establishing a national bank, to creating a foreign policy, to responding to domestic crises. Five men brought a new government and country into being, or led a new country into being. And the documents on which it was founded have adapted to centuries of change with very little revision. Now, I picked the day at random, August 21st, 1794. Hamilton corresponded with the president and directors of the Bank of the US about a $1 million loan to the government. William Ellery, the collector of customs at Newport about fortifying the port. Elizabeth Hamilton over the recovery of their son, John Church Hamilton, her, what the other children were doing and arranging for her to travel back to the city from Albany. He wrote to Henry Lee, the governor of Virginia, and Thomas Lee, the governor of Maryland, about calling up the militia. And there were two letters to George Washington about opposition to the whiskey tax in Pennsylvania. Now, I had written a lot of notes, but my favorite was the Reynolds Affair, because that was my triumph. And more than any other episode in Hamilton's life, this one shows how highly he valued his reputation for public honesty above all other, all other things. Uh, quickly, I think most people know it, but in 1792, a man named James Reynolds accused Hamilton of participating in a scheme involving payments to deceased Revolutionary War veterans. Hamilton cleared himself with members of Congress by uh, explaining that he had paid Reynolds blackmail money to avoid public exposure of his affair with Reynolds' wife, Maria. This, and that was the end of it, as far as everyone was concerned, and it was never made public. But in 1797, a very unscrupulous reporter sort of James Thompson Calendar, now he would you know, write for the Inquirer, uh, raised these accusations of, again. He accused Hamilton of fiscal misconduct, and he published it in the newspapers. Hamilton, in response, published the Reynolds Affair pamphlet, which I think we're having trouble. <laughs> it's either me, the, the machine, or you. <laughs> it's always me. It's always you? It's always okay, me. Okay, I'll take you for it. Uh, Keep going. It should be the Reynolds. No, that was the Rufus King letter we couldn't find before. Keep going. <laughs> that, that's the Grange. Okay. okay, that's it. <laughs> okay. 
Hamilton's instinct was, Hamilton was scrupulously honest. One thing, scrupulously honest in his public life. There were many times the Republicans tried to, to get him on charges of, of fiscal misconduct. There were congressional investigations, and always he passed with flying colors. So in 1797, when this charge of fiscal misconduct came up again, he published a pamphlet, and he said, hey, no, I had an affair with this man's wife. Here are the letters back and forth between us. He identified Maria Reynolds and her family and where she came from. I was just starting my research on the Reynolds affair. When we got a call from Julian Boyd on the Jefferson Papers, aha, the enemy. <laughs> and Julian's contention was that they could not prove that Maria Reynolds was who Hamilton said she was, that there was no record of her in Dutchess County, New York, and therefore Hamilton was lying and he was guilty of fiscal misconduct. Well, I mean, that was the gauntlet. So I dove into the library to prove this wrong. I spent hours searching through all kinds of crazy records. Couldn't find a thing. I was finally reduced to sitting on the floor of the stacks in Columbia's library in the New York section. Now, in the old days when we did things with Dewey Decimal, you could go to the history section of the stacks, and then there was each state alphabetically. And then within each state, you had each county alphabetically. So I found Dutchess County, and I just sat on the floor, and I went through every darn book there was. And Columbia had a great collection of all sorts of obscure odds and ends of uh, county annuals and, and, and scraps of things. They're very strange. Anyway, I found two volumes called the Dutchess County Historical Society Yearbook. The pages were uncut, so no one had ever looked at these. And when we opened them, there it was. It was a collection of miscellaneous. There was recipes from the July 4th celebration, lists of militiamen, and then a page that just said, Reynolds Family Bible First Page. Because in those days, families maybe still recorded everything that happened to a family on the inside cover of a Bible. And there it was. There she was, her whole background, her whole genealogy, Hamilton was absolutely right. We then found a second volume that had additional information. Now, as I was, I have to tell you too that if, if I were doing this today, I would still be on the floor in the stacks because I'd be arthritic, but I'd be on the floor <laughs> in the stacks because it, it's still not available online. And when I was over at Columbia a few years ago and I tried to locate these volumes again, they couldn't find them. So, you know, so much for the internet sometimes. But as I was looking at the documents on the Reynolds Affair, as I was gathering all this information, something kept niggling in the back of my mind. This is the advantage of uh, taking your time and, and looking back and forth and, and, and getting context on Hamilton's life. We had a whole bunch of miscellaneous documents, what we called neither nors, neither to nor from Hamilton, but important. Uh, such things might be um, the accounts of the duel by his seconds, things by other people that were related to him, odds and ends of undated scraps, all sorts of miscellaneous. And I went back to a will that Hamilton had prepared 
uh, before his anticipated duel with John Nicholson in 1795. And that will included at the bottom a reference to a bundle of papers marked JR. And next to it, something was scrawled, and we couldn't quite read it. We had bad copy in the, in the early days, the, the copies were very bad. So we went back to the original will, and there it was in Elizabeth Hamilton's handwriting, and it said, to be retained by myself. And she no doubt destroyed all the records. Uh, when she was living in Washington years later, James Madison was president. He'd been in Congress at the time of the original scandal. He came to visit. She said if he didn't come to apologize, she wouldn't see him. He didn't apologize, and she didn't see him. Politically, the years following his resignation from the cabinet in 1795 were frustrating. Although he was appointed inspector general under Washington to organize an army in anticipation of the quasi-war with France, President Adams made peace, war was averted, Hamilton was angry about it. The papers regarding the quasi-war were voluminous. Many repetitious letters of recommendations, lists of potential candidates for army appointments. Together they offer a who's who of the Federalist Party in 1797. Some people were recommended for valid reasons, past service, uh, prominent family. Others were sort of humorous. There was one I remember where someone was recommended for an appointment and the person recommending him wrote, tall, looks good on horse. <laughs> <laughs> we, the letters were so repetitious in the end, we did what we call calendaring of them. We just listed them in the back, said what they were about, but we didn't print them all. They are available online. Less attention in the years after 1795 were paid to his law practice. And Hamilton was a very successful lawyer. He had a very lucrative practice. Documents relating to the legal practice were so complicated and voluminous that that's a separate project under the direction of Julius Gerbel and Joe Smith at Columbia Law School. Columbia University Press published five volumes called The Law Practice of Alexander Hamilton. The end of the revolution altered the commercial environment in the states. It changed trade patterns. It destroyed business relationships with England. It released US merchants from English trade restrictions. And businessmen found themselves looking for good legal talent to handle questions of contract and credit. Marine insurance cases were a large part of Hamilton's practice, as evidenced by numerous mentions of ships and his cash book and register. Contemporaries say he argued in long and spellbinding presentations before New York City courts and before appellate judges in Albany. In 1796, in the case of Hilton versus the U.S., he argued before the Supreme Court on the government's behalf on the constitutionality of the imposition of a yearly tax on carriages. After Hamilton's three-hour speech, Justice James Iredell wrote, Mr. Hamilton spoke in our court, attended by the most crowded audience I ever saw there, both houses of Congress being almost deserted on the occasion. Though he was in very ill health, he spoke with astonishing ability and in a most pleasing manner, and was listened to with the profoundest attention. The court upheld the government's position that a tax on personal property was not a direct tax, and was this was the first use of the principle of judicial review. This preceded John Marshall and Margaret versus Madison. 
And the Hilton decision lasted until 1895 when it was overturned in the case of Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. Hamilton's practice enabled him to live very comfortably. He engaged architect John McComb Jr. to design a country home, the only property he ever owned on 32 acres in what is now Harlem. Completed in 1802, Hamilton named it the Grange after his father's ancestral home in Scotland. He traveled there several times a week by stage, planned every aspect of its construction and landscaping, including 13 trees that were supposed to symbolize the original 13 states. In public life, Hamilton was most effective when serving with Washington. Unfortunately, Washington's death in December 1799 coincided with the decline of the Federalist Party, Hamilton's frustration at his diminishing political influence, the rise of Jefferson, Burr's increasingly irritating public presence, and the death of his eldest son, Philip, in a duel in 1801. When Washington died, Hamilton wrote to Washington's secretary, Tobias Lear, in what is now a very famous letter. I have been much indebted to the kindness of the general, and he was an aegis very essential to me. Perhaps more significantly, he wrote to Martha Washington, I cannot say in how many ways the continuance of his confidence and friendship was necessary to me in future relations. These were realistic self-assessments, for from this point on, no one could buffer him, protect him from himself, his judgment became more extreme, his public opinions more vituperative. So, let's not glamorize the duel. He's not a great Shakespearean tragic hero. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the manner of his death frequently overshadows his legacy. Some historians see the duel as a reflection of Hamilton's sense of honor, but if so, that honor was tinged with arrogance and false pride. He was involved in several earlier duels, challenges to William Gordon, Adanus Burke, James Nicholson, Maturin Livingston, James Monroe, and he helped others set up duels, um, including the one with his son. Hamilton and Burr had an unusual relationship. There were times when they even represented the same clients and cases. Burr was also a very successful attorney. But Hamilton always distrusted him. Hamilton didn't like Jefferson, but he really distrusted Burr. And politically, their differences went back to the 1789 New York gubernatorial race. They continued through Burr's term in the US Senate and included Burr's belief that Hamilton influenced George Washington not to appoint him as US Minister to France in 1794. After 1800, Hamilton became even more outspoken. He attacked Burr in the presidential election of 1800 and later supported Morgan Lewis over Burr for governor of New York in 1804. That's an interesting event in and of itself. I think that's the only time in US history when a sitting vice president knew he was not going to be renominated and, and sought elective office elsewhere. Just, you know, be ready with the job. The events leading to the duel are well known, and most of the relevant documents and letters have at one time or another been printed, but there are still lots of mysteries surrounding the event. And the biggest one of all is exactly what did Hamilton say that set Burr off. In a published letter from Charles Cooper, and all of this, Burr was not present when Hamilton made whatever statement he made. But he found out about it because 
a letter from Charles Cooper, an Albany physician, to Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, was published in the newspaper. And in that letter to Schuyler, Cooper wrote that at a gathering at the home of Judge John Taylor in Albany, Hamilton described Burr as a dangerous man who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. But that isn't what sparked Burr. What sparked Burr was the next line. Cooper added that he could detail a still more despicable opinion of Mr. Burr that Hamilton had expressed. And what that despicable opinion was has generated much speculation. Many, that's, that's the key to the duel. And we can discuss later in the Q&A what I think it was, but uh, Hamilton and Burr had been saying nasty things about each other's political abilities for, for years. That was not enough to set anybody off. It had to be something far more personal. There are lots of questions about the duel. We don't answer them. Our mission was not interpretive history. Why did Hamilton go out of his way to accept the challenge when he could have simply said he didn't remember saying it? Did Hamilton have a death wish? That was Richard Hofstadter's theory. And if he did, why did he take such a peculiar, if roundabout, way to fulfill it? What were Burr's motives for expanding his original demands? Why did it take months for the seconds to arrange the duel? Did Hamilton really delay firing? Was Burr unaware of Hamilton's pledge to shoot and miss? Or did he know and he ignored it? Have the dueling pistols survived? And if so, which of the many pairs iconographers and antiquarians have described are the right ones? Those interested in these questions are going to have to look elsewhere. You know, we were the dragnet of historical editing, just the facts. Just the facts. So in the end, let me see if I can get to the end. No, we've gone the wrong way. There's Surrett and there's Hamilton. In the end, Surrett far exceeded his mission. In recently reviewing the project material on deposit in Columbia, I found not only the 19,000 documents in their envelopes, but many of our transcriptions and handwritten notes. Notes about sources, records of our review of different interpretations by Hamilton scholars, notes to and from each other on research questions. This material is not included online. But for anyone who consults these original envelopes, we created a one-stop shop for research on Hamilton. And by consulting these notes, scholars can follow in our tracts as we followed in Hamilton's. So I leave you with the image of these two men who formed an effective partnership across two centuries. Hamilton on your right, obviously, and Surrett on your left. Their collaboration forms the basis of current biographies and interpretations of our nation's founding. And in these days of constitutional crisis, such scholarship is vital. For me, these were the best years. I'm furious with Burr because I, the job got cut short. Uh, but if I can answer any of your questions about the project, I'd be happy to take them. Thank you. Go. Yes. Uh, you were talking, sort of the theme of what you were talking about was sort of the good news and bad news of the internet. Um, have you found that um, the research online now has actually facilitated your ability to track down some of these other items you said that have come to your attention? No. <laughs> That's it's that. You know what fascinates me about some of this material? Uh, 
three years ago, I guess, I spoke at the Museum of American Finance. And at that point, we toyed with the idea of maybe do a sup doing a supplementary volume and put out feelers. Now, I'm not a particularly rich person, so maybe I don't understand this, but I was getting material from people who would say, I just happened to find another Hamilton letter in my holdings. Or there's one gentleman who by now has sent me about seven items, and that he keeps saying, oh, I just found another one. And I thought, gee, if I had seven Hamilton items, I would know it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're interesting, but they don't say anything new to us. And I've actually had uh, difficulty trying to fit them into the, the whole scheme. Uh, and I think in order to really, the, part of the, the mandate of this project was completeness. Okay, it was everything. Now you can argue that maybe that's a waste of time and money, but that, that was the charge at the time. So I guess it would be interesting to put all of this out there in order to make this complete. But it, it's really a scraps at this point. It's odds and ends and they're unrelated and I can't find much about them. And some of them are legal and that's outside my scope. Was Hamilton a slave owner? Was Hamilton a? Slave owner. No. There was a slavery, was no slavery in New York, but Hamilton was not a slave owner. But he made his compromises. You know, it, everybody looks to the declaration in 1776 on the fact that Jefferson was, Jefferson took out the anti-slavery statement um, because the South said they wouldn't vote independence and independence had to be a, a unanimous vote. Um, slavery was held hostage on the altar of appeasement uh, and it was Franklin who in 1776 said, you know, independence first. That's what this is about, independence first. Then we'll straighten out everything else. And in 1826, when Jefferson and Adams both died, by the way, on July 4th, um, they had renewed their correspondence in later years. The very interesting correspondence in the 1820s as they looked back, lamenting the fact that they had never resolved the slavery question and the fact that the nation was headed towards a disaster. And yet, Jefferson never freed his slaves. From 1774 to 1826, I don't know how many times he said he was going to do it and he never did. I often wonder what would have happened if his president, he had done that. And John Adams, who was opposed to slavery, moved into the White House, a house built by slaves in a city in which slavery was legal. They all made their compromises. But he was not a, directly a slave owner. And I think he had different views because of his youth in the Caribbean. I think he had a more open mind. Yes? Was, uh, when you mentioned your president being Richard Nixon oh, as you were working on this, Nixon wrote a statement about Eisenhower, which I find baffling. He said, we see by this that Eisenhower was a more complex and devious person than most people realize, mm -hmm. and this in the best sense of both words. I can't understand with Eisenhower, but I was wondering, did you feel that Hamilton emerged as a more complex and devious person in the best sense of both more words? More complex, not more devious. In fact, he was, it was his bluntness that, that um, got him into trouble. I, you know, I used to say he wasn't a politician, he was a statesman, but he wasn't a statesman either because he wasn't tactful. Uh, he was right. <laughs> and, you know, his fiscal proposals reveal a degree of, of sophistication. You almost wonder where did he learn it? 
um, you know, the, the work he did in the Caribbean before he came to the United States, you know, okay, he worked for a merchant, he did, he did factoring, he knew finance, but those proposals are so sophisticated. It really is a brilliant mind at work. And then for all of his years as Secretary of the Treasury, you know, he, I can't tell you how many letters he wrote to uh, a house in, in um, the Netherlands, Willing Van Staphorst and Hubbard, who were the factors for paying back our loan to France. We paid back our entire revolutionary war debt. Um, his mind was unbelievable, but he was always right. And it was Washington who buffered him. Always it was Washington who buffered him. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever uh, review any of Alexander Hamilton's cash books as part of the documents that you researched? The cash books went. Uh, uh, this I don't know why, but the cash book is available online. It covers 1795 to 1801 only, and it was really included in the legal papers because most of it is records on court cases. So occasionally we consulted it for uh, reference, but I didn't have intimate knowledge of it. The New York Historical Society, I believe it was started in 
that Mr. Hamilton, Cooper could have detailed that Hamilton said about Burr. I could say something even more despicable. Nobody wrote home and said, hey, I was at that party and you know what he said? Or, hey, I was at that party and I didn't hear anything. Nobody ever put in writing what that was. And yet that's what sparked it. And when Hamilton second, um, after the duel was over and Hamilton died and accounts were written by everybody who knew everything about what had happened and said it, nobody mentions it. And Burr was indicted for murder. He was not convicted. Um, he then went on to get himself in trouble over the Burr conspiracy, and he left the United States and didn't return for years. Uh, there are lots of theories on what the despicable opinion was. Last question? Huh? Go ahead. That list of questions you asked at the end of your speech about, I know you were just doing the facts, but you have opinions about them. Oh, sure. Could you tell us a few of your opinions on the answer of those questions? <laughs> I think Hamilton said something personal. I think he said something about Burr's daughter Theodosia. She had a very bad reputation. Uh, and I think he, he made a slur. And that's what, that's what set Burr off. That would have been the unforgivable thing. Insulting Burr politically, I don't think you're good. He'd been doing that for 20 years. That never sparked a duel. It had to be something else. That's no. the other question you also made. The pistols, you know, the... The Bank of New York, I think, claims to have the pistols because they say that um, one of them was altered slightly. Because this. But the truth is also that dueling convention required that you have two exactly matching sets of pistols at every duel. So do they have the first set or the second set? Was that the set that was also used in his son's duel with, with Eakin? I don't know how you prove that. It's interesting. It would be, uh, it's nice to claim you have them, but... No one can prove you. No one can prove you do. No one can prove you don't. Um, I don't think it was a death wish. I think that was a somewhat roundabout way to go about a death wish. So no, I, I you know, Hamilton was a prideful man. Burr was a prideful man. Uh, I think Hamilton made a slur at a bad moment. They got caught up in it, and no one would back down. You know, two little boys in the schoolyard. Yeah. Twenty-seven volumes. Jennifer, are they for sale? <laughs> Do you have them in the warehouse? Oh, I thought that this, um, the title of the... This is just one volume. There were twenty-seven of them. Are they in stock? I'm just curious. Do you have anything in the warehouse? Well, we, you know, print on demand. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and, and, and they are online. All twenty-seven volumes are online. Were there letters between Jefferson and Hamilton, and do you have any stories about any good story between the, about their relationship? No, it was, there are letters back and forth during the cabinet years, um, but no, no. And remember, here we go back to Washington again, the most, you know, in some ways underrated, um, the man who balanced them all. When I came on board in 1960. Nine. I was a young graduate student. I was sent there for a summer job, summer job that lasted eight years. Uh, the whiskey insurrection was the hot subject, and for years, uh, historians and biographies, it was always that Hamilton convinced Washington to send the troops 
into Pennsylvania, and Jefferson was opposed. Uh, and then I got into the Washington Papers, and I found a copy of the first draft of Washington's proclamation to the citizens of Western Pennsylvania. And behind it was another copy with Hamilton's interlineations and another copy with Jefferson's, and then the final, and you could see what Washington picked and chose and who he listened to. He was not so easily dominated. And one of the things we're losing with the internet and, and track changes and accept changes is we don't know the thread anymore. We have the final copy. But we don't have all of this backup stuff where you could see who made which suggestion, who, which did Washington take from Hamilton, what did he take from Jefferson, about other opinions as well. You know, all we get now is a fine, you can delete anything. So we're losing the whole thread of, of who contributed to which decision making. I mean, look what we're going through now. Yeah. So it's, it, to me, the Jefferson-Hamilton relationship was, was they disagreed on many things, but it was very professional. And I don't have any evidence that I can remember of, of an unpleasant rivalry. I'm not sure I understand. Well, we come with a different perspective on life at this point than they have. Oh, goodness, I, I wish we, sometimes we had their perspective. Um, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., great historian, once gave a talk in which he said the difference between then and now okay, is that in those days that political, our political philosophers and our political practitioners were the same people and now they're not. And that's why we get into so much trouble. Our politicians are no longer our thinkers. Nothing scares me more than the phrase constitutional convention because I cannot imagine the current Congress touching this constitution because it would become a, a series of bias changes. These men were able to put, put aside certain differences in the interests of the nation. I mean, the constitution is a remarkably, it's a remarkable document, but also because of the compromise it reflects. When I look back on it, I can only admire, and from the perspective of today, I find today frustrating. I don't know if that answers your question. I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I have such admiration for what they accomplished. I don't think they were perfect. God knows they weren't perfect. Slavery wasn't perfect. There were lots of things that weren't solved. But to go from where we were in 1776 to where we were in 1800 was remarkable. And I just admired the, the, the fact that they had philosophical commitments, they had moral commitments. Uh, they were very secular. You know, as I think back on it, there are times when God is mentioned in correspondence, but it's very, it's very limited.
confident thinker, who may also be a politician, of this day and age. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Next. This is the last question. <laughs> I, I, to which I may not have an answer. Uh, there are people I admire. I don't know that I would trust them. I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't think the Constitution should be revised. Uh, you, we can have amendments to it now and again. You know, it might be nice to have the Equal Rights Amendment, but I think what makes the document so powerful is its flexibility. It wasn't as specific. So there was lots of room in it for interpretation. Um, who do I approve of now? I, I mean, there are people whose philosophies I, I approve of, you know, New York politicians, because I'm, I'm on the left side of the political spectrum. Um, I'm scared of people making changes of the moment to the document. These men thought ahead. They thought to the future. They allowed for growth. They allowed for change. Now, if things were made, changes were made, they would be partisan changes tax law changes, electoral college changes, impeachment changes, um, that would be party generated. When the Constitution was drafted, there really weren't parties. There were factions. They hadn't yet become parties. They so, were all Freemasons, well, though, right? I'm sorry? They were all Freemasons. No, they, they, were, they, they were factions. There was, there was a Federalist faction and a Republican faction. It didn't really become parties till 1795 and the debate over the Jay Treaty. That's when the split really occurred and when Washington clearly pushed himself into the Federalist Party and that's when Jefferson split sort of with him or distanced himself. Um, but I don't know who the great philosophers are now. I think they're different. I think Larry Tribe, but he's, he's not a politician. He would be the person I most respect in terms of what's going on now. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, big round of applause for Barbara and all of the wonderful information that was shared. Yeah, do it yeah. again, do it again. here in the museum so please go get a drink downstairs the happy hour is wonderful we hope to see you again if you have any questions find me yeah. find scott in the back come back sorry <laughs> hang out sorry if i ran Two over face. you can oh okay you can drink some water it's just you let them yes. go they keep it's right it's right the q and a is the fun right now it's who do i admire it's hard to find after today's event <laughs> It's a great senior, it's always. Always a pleasure. Yeah. It's all right. Who are you? I'm sorry, Who are you? I'm sorry, Who are you? Okay. You weren't at the uh, museum a few years ago, were you? Oh, okay. So it's the same talk. You're based in New York. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, no. You're based in New York City? Yes. What are the possible to for an interview? Sure. Give me a second. Just stay right here. I'll get you. When I get my purse. Perfect. Okay, okay. It was wonderful. You, you want to handle with that. Can I? Take good care of them.
gosh, you did such a fabulous oh, job, you. and I was interested, so interested. But can you tell me, you really want to preserve the Electoral College? Yes. We're having so many problems with it. Yes. I mean, it made Donald Trump president. It also made George W. Bush president. It made Donald Trump president in an illegal election, but you have to be very careful. The purpose of the Electoral College was to achieve not to let small states not lose their position, to let minority groups who were largely centered in the big states to have a vote, and to ensure that the person who becomes president cannot be elected by only one part of the country. You need to put together a coalition across different states, different sizes, different places. It's a dangerous game to tamper with. Ha. <laughs> you have to think about it carefully. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We I, maybe have to we eliminate gerrymandering. Make it proportional. That's the only way we, behind your we can make it proportional. Oh, I'm sorry. But that okay, excuse me, I waited for my turn to speak about the founding fathers. I mean, right of center, but I hear that you're 100% oh. the greatest people. Oh, they were the greatest. And the thing I loved about the show, Hamilton, yes. was that scene with Washington dealing with Jefferson here and Hamilton here. To me, that was, that was the height of that show. He deserves Washington's my favorite president, too. So. You know one of my favorite stories, which I didn't tell today, but in 1793, they were debating in the cabinet the neutrality proclamation. And they got into a conflict. And Washington adjourned the cabinet so they could all go back to their offices and read their Battelles. Battelle was an international law theorist. And then they reconvened with their opinions. And I just think of Donald Trump saying, oh, let's all go back to our offices and read Battelles. You know? It was a different, they all more thoughtful. Really, as you point out, they all have entire country at and they, Yes. Even the fact that we have a two-house two uh, Congress is a, is a, was a compromise. It's filled with compromise. It is. It is. But, but they knew the wisdom. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten We wouldn't have gotten it. That and was it. We might have had two countries. The South might have been yeah. one country, and the North might have been another country. Or we never would have left Britain. Or, no. <laughs> We'd have this area. Oh, I don't know. Let me see. I have to deal with everybody. Okay. Let me see if I can get this. Me, it was really good. Hey. You changed some from the yes. first. Yes. Well, I, I like this a lot better. Oh, that was the first time I saw the other one. It was really good. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoyed it. it hey. Really Don't lose touch. Okay, wanna... you're, my own, you're my only contact with you. And I got a, I got a question. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I guess. You know, the one thing, you know, he never ran for office, did he? No. No, once. I think he served in the city legislature for a year. But he never, he no. wasn't a politician. No, no politician. So that's what differentiated from the rest of them. No politician. Yeah. Wasn't a statesman either. But stay in touch, because if I lose touch with you, I lose the family. Okay? Take right. care. You Good too. You. Say hi. I will. Okay. Do you have a business card? Yes, one second. Thanks so much. Thanks I'm just like, I am like, I can't I am I I I figured that maybe it would be an issue because yeah. of the topic. Right. And I was right. But luckily, not, I guess not enough people showed up. I know, we were lucky. I came here, I took the train from Really? Where in Connecticut? Oh.
Hamilton did not keep much of his correspondence, but his wife did keep her correspondence. So no, do I have that mixed no, no, up no, no, or no, no. He didn't save. He didn't take care of much of anything. Right, 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 right. She went around looking for stuff after he died. Oh, after he died. Okay. She didn't save. She destroyed eventually her correspondence. But, but we don't have I, I'm just amazed in general that uh, who who actually keeps letters? We, we you know we don't have all this correspondence. No, in those days, everybody kept letters. You kept you had a copyist who copied your letters, yeah. copied letters that were received, copied letters that were right, right, right. There are a million copies of every letter. Right, right. But, but why would Washington do that? Or we had some Washington had the best secretaries in the world, too. Bartholomew Dangerich and then Tobias Lear. Who was the first guy? Bartholomew Dangerich, related to Martha. They kept Tobias Lear. Yeah. They kept Executive Journal, which is like a diary, everything Washington did, they copied every letter, they were meticulous. Washington's correspondence statement ever edited, not just because it's voluminous, which it is, but because everything was saved. Jefferson, everything was saved. Hamilton, nah. Didn't Jefferson have some sort of mimeograph machine that he invented? He had a two-pin machine. That they were connected, so when he wrote on this side, it copied on that side, right. so he oh. had an automatic wow. copy. One of the little engines that might be yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the slave quarters and the pens. Yeah. Uh, uh, my name is Greg Wilson. I corresponded Oh, you're the one who corresponded email. about Robert Morris. Thank you so much. That's okay. I read your, uh, your, your paper about the Genesee. But the, the dissertation itself, and the, you know, the very funny thing is this place is sponsored by the SNR, and when I wrote that dissertation, they gave me the prize for it. But then, and it was published in a dissertation series by Arnold Press, which doesn't exist anymore. And I have only one copy, which I found when my mother passed away. She had kept it, and that was, that's it. I don't have anything else. Just let me, first of all, thank you because the 27 volumes uh, are the basis and support for the biographies and all the other oh, yeah. academic work on Hamilton. And is there any relationship between you and Ron? No. Well, no. I talked to Ron before the, before the play, at the time he came out with the book. And he said that he read all yeah, he did. Bodies, yeah. among everything else. I have no idea what he did. I, I met Ron once when he was first starting uh, his research. Surrette was gone by then. I offered, if he had any questions, to contact me. I think the fact that we had the same name and it's an unusual name was frustrating to him and he has ignored it. He's ignored it. And I don't mind people using the volumes. That's what they're there for. They're out there for credit where it's due and so it deserves oh, sure. the credit for all of this. Yes, yes. And he has not been mentioned in all of these things that are coming out. That gentleman who was here before with the white hair and the beard is his son. Another scholar. Is Surrett's son. Yeah. He's, oh, so you know, it's, it's keeping the legacy alive. Well, I, I read appointment uh, at, at we have and it, it's online. I want to get the book.
book actually, but I read it. I was like, this flows real nice. And you said, well, her, they described her, what type of lawyer he was, what type of lawyer Hamilton was, and it developed really well. It reads very well. Guys, just wait. Susan Bryan? of this and maybe there's a certain amount of gender in it but the duel was two little boys squabbling yes exactly and this idea that ron has that it was some great affair of honor you know give me a break he was involved in six seven eight duels in his life i mean every you know i don't like you i don't like the way he's dressed like that you know yeah it was part of his almost napoleon complex yeah i in general I've been to a lot of museums and historical houses, yeah. and you see a lot of the uh, letters of famous, mm. you know, of this period, uh, similar right. periods. Sometimes I, I can't make out the words. I'm wondering, oh. how are you able to... to we to had people who, who transcribed and approved and transcribed. wife did, in the later years, did almost all of it, and she was incredible. But after Sarette passed away, she was putting together a supplementary volume, and I had long since gone on to other things. She was sending me things saying, yeah, make out the word on the third line. Wow. Can you? Right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you can. After a while, it, it's yeah, it's like it's an art, anything yeah. else. You, after a while, you, you know the handwriting. What's going to be in the future? That in some schools, they don't even teach cursive handwriting anymore. Well, Everything you can't, is you don't emails know who wrote things Twitter. anymore. Uh, the way things are done on the Internet, you can erase records of who made right, changes. Right, 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 right. Or you can have records of who made changes it's you know it depends on the person i, I don't trust anything coming out of I this mean, administration so i, I don't know what's happening i know people that they, they don't even talk on the telephone no. anymore oh nobody talks on the phone anymore. the techniques that you that you